All right. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's go to Mark chapter 12. I lied to you last week, and I got to admit that and apologize to you. I told you we were going to finish chapter 12 today. That was a story. I told you a story. If you don't have a Bible, there's some paperback Bibles out in the lobby on the, de- uh, the table. One of those things. And um, you can grab one. It's our gift to you. Otherwise, you can download it on an app or follow along on the screen. Got three verses for you. I couldn't do math in my head, so I had to literally go like this as I was reading my verses here. Three verses for you. But this is going to be a powerful uh, set of scripture. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Are you there? All right, two of you are. The rest of you can follow along. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can those scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, one more time, let's pray before God and ask him to help us with the reading of his word. God, thank you so much again. Here we are. Some people may have walked in here or trickled in here, maybe, maybe by force, or maybe they just wanted to check things out, God. Maybe some people are looking for a word. Thank you, Lord, that your word just was read out loud. So, God, we pray that that word would read us by revealing our sin and revealing our Savior. So, Christ, would you be magnified and glorified in all things and help me as I go through this passage. In Christ's name, amen. If you've been following along with the Gospel of Mark, you've noticed that now we have transitioned from uh, questions from the classroom, so to speak, to now the teacher is the one imposing the questions on the people. And if you go back to chapter 11, verse 27, and this is when the initial challenges to Jesus began. It was their attempt to play gotcha with Jesus, to play, I'm going to catch you and I'm going to make you confess something so that we can report back to Rome that you are an insurrectionist and the, the, the penalty for the crime would be death. And so that's what they're doing. They're a little ticked off at Jesus because Jesus has displayed authority. They're a little ticked off at Jesus because Jesus has had sort of this type of popularity where people are praising him. And so they went through this like line after line, question after question, and and trying to trick Jesus. But the only problem is, is that you can't play gotcha with Jesus. You, You can't play, I'm going to question you and I'm going to be the judge You just can't do that without Jesus, without there being like some type of anticipation that Jesus is going to get you in return. In fact, I love how verse, I think it was 34 last week when, when, when we picked up that story, the the passage says, and no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. It was like, 
and you, you shouldn't beat a dog, but like you see like this beat down dog, you got the tail tucked between his legs. I imagine in my mind that these religious leaders got their tails tucked in and they're like, well, dang man, that didn't go quite as planned. We thought that we would have tricked him. We thought we would have had that gotcha moment so that we could report back to the Roman empire and say, here's your insurrectionist. He said this, now go kill him. But they couldn't do that. In fact, what happens is, is Jesus is going to say to the class, now that you're done with your stupid little questions, it's my time. And the question here that Jesus poses is like a riddle. It's a very difficult question. So I want us to look at this question that Jesus is asking, and let's just try to see what's happening. Now, this is a direct quote from Psalm 110. And we get that this question, that Jesus is using the word of God to question them. He is using his word to question the people now. And he questions them from Psalm 119 and Psalm 119. We read the whole thing just a few moments ago, but I'll read just a couple of the verses. You can read it again later on. But he says in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. This is a prophetic word that David, the psalmist in the Psalm 110 is writing. And I would suggest that it's not just a Psalm about uh, Christ coming, but it also has some type of eschatological uh, purpose behind it. What I mean by that is just a fancy word that I just love to say. It has this end time type of meaning to it. And we'll dive into that in just a moment. So if we look at this, that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And some of us might find the notion to say something like, well, why would Jesus use the Bible? Why would he use it? Why he really doesn't even need to use the Bible. But it lets us see that Jesus really knew the word. He knew the Old Testament. And he knew that it was breathed out by God. It's the reason why he says, uh, he's using this terminology that he says, David himself, watch what he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, or if you, maybe your translation says, by the Holy Spirit declared. So Jesus has this recognition that David has an awareness of the inspiration from the Holy Spirit divinely communicating to David to write down the words of God. It is why we hold to the doctrine of scripture, that all scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. They do, and it's interesting because what you find in other religions is quite the opposite, isn't it? In fact, the, the, uh, in, in fact what's, the, what's the book I'm looking for? The Quran. Muhammad, Muhammad, he's, he's, he's doing it by some different type of being telling him what to write down. And then the scribe is writing. And so this is quite different. In fact, what you would see in other religions is not like this. It is not being directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you have to look at this. And, and, and so they also believe the Bible. And Jesus is using this because he knows that the scribes are going to be very clear in their understanding of scripture. 
Now, we've already had this son of David reference, right? If you remember, uh, I'm thinking back in the, the story of blind Bartimaeus, right? Remember what happens in that story. And, and I, don't, I, I don't know when we did that story. That was like, feels like years ago, but it's probably just months ago. But blind, the dude's blind, right? And he hears the, the, the you know, the... The, the hustle and the bustle that there's Jesus is coming around the street. Jesus is coming. And so blind Bartimaeus, and knowing that Jesus is coming, he cries out. What does he cry out? Son of David, have mercy on me. Doesn't say son of man, doesn't say any of that. Son of David. Why? Why does blind Bartimaeus say son of David? Because blind Bartimaeus understood the meaning of son of David, because every Hebrew person, every Jew would have understand the meaning of son of David, who was the son of David, the Messiah, the one they've been looking for, the one they've been searching for. And it's so fascinating to me, and I belabor this point because then I, I hammered this point down uh, quite a bit when we were going through that particular passage, is that the only person who knew who Jesus was, was the blind dude. Isn't that fascinating? That the folks that had eyes to see were the ones themselves who were blind. But the one blind dude who couldn't see who was seen as a disease and an outcast, and you don't speak. Remember they told him, shut up. Be quiet. You're not supposed to be speaking. The one who was supposed to remain silent, the one who was blind, had a clear vision of who Jesus really is. And Jesus is the Messiah. And so when you hear the word son of David, that's exactly what they're imposing. It is the Messiah language is the Messiah language. And so you, you get this question then in light of that, Jesus is addressing the fact that they have seemed to be, they have like this faulty view of things. And so how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, it's important to understand, is Jesus saying, how can they say he's the Messiah? So is Jesus contradicting the fact that the son of David is the Messiah? No, it's rhetorical. Jesus is pressing on them. And what we'll find is that Jesus has a vital, vital purpose to this question that he is imposing upon these religious people. So we understand that this, this, this question comes from Scripture grounded in scripture, comes straight out of the Psalms. In fact, this particular Psalm is, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm probably wrong, because uh, I'm wrong on a lot of things, uh, but not wrong on the Bible. This is one thing, so I'm probably right. It's likely the verse that you see what happens in my head. This is just me word vomiting. This, this is the, the, the verse that's most quoted in the New Testament. This Psalm is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And we'll find, we'll dig into this in just a moment. So now we see that this has, not only is it grounded in scripture, but there's some logic behind this question. We get some, some dimensions of God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. When Jesus asked this question, how can they say that the Christ, the Messiah is the son of David? He's clearly not saying that the Christ 
or the son of David is not the Christ or is not the Messiah. He knows. What he is leading his listener into is the conclusion that the Messiah is indeed the son of David. Now, I know this is teaching. You just have to bear with me before we get into some of the meat of this, but I've got to work through this context. But he is not just the son of David. That he is both son of man, son of David, and son of God. In other words, Jesus is bringing them into a journey that is dense and that is in the weeds about the nature of the incarnation of Christ. Or if I were to teach you a good theological term, because you know you, you've got to be good students and you've got to know these type of words, right? The hypostatic union, right? Say that word, hypostatic union. Come on. You're, come on, you're all sensible people. You should know what that is. I had to look it up. The hypostatic union of Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man. It is the mystery of the incarnation and what Jesus is doing here is leading them into that path of the incarnation because you have two notions here, both of which are very true. He is the son of David and he is also the son of God or he is the Messiah. And what Mark is doing here, just broadly, let me give you some more context if I can. What Mark is doing is he's, is he's taking his, his listeners, he's taking those of us who are reading this on a journey, and as if you were, as you read the book of Mark, you ought to be reading this as a whole letter. That was the intention of letters to the churches. When they were writing the gospel, you would have the gospel of Mark was to be read in one setting. And so if you remember, this should not become a surprise to us as a reader. Because you got to think back, where have I seen that Christ is the Messiah? Well, you've seen it clearly. When Peter made the claim, right? Remember the, the, the question Q&A that Jesus had with his disciples? And his disciples, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And I, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're this dude or you're just a prophet. And then he turns around and he looks at them and he indicts them with the question, well, who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter, my boy, gets it right because he'd been getting it wrong for a really long time. But finally, Peter sinks with Jesus and he says to him, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And he gets it, right? And then we look at that from chapter nine, we're like, oh, congratulations, Pete, you finally got the answer right. And so we all say, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. And then we further along, we look at chapter 14, when Jesus is being addressed by the Sanhedrins, and they say to him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Jesus remains silent for quite some time. And they again approach him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says to them, I am that I am. Making his identity perfectly clear to the Sanhedrin and those who have been questioning him all along. You fools have not been able to see it. The only person that's been able to see it is the blind dude. And so finally here I am to reveal to you that I am who I am. I am the Messiah. And just, you know, shockwave when he says this. It's a question of his identity. How can he be the son of man, 
and the Son of God. Now, you have to understand language. Language is so critically important because if they were to hear he is the Son of God, if they were to hear that he is the Son of David, they would have in no way saw this to be, well, he's the actual birth son of David. How is that possible? Because David's dead. Like long time ago dead. Like his bones probably have already kind of dissolved into the ground kind of dead. So it's not about Jesus being this created, birthed person in heaven. It is a title that he has given to him. It is a title of royalty. That when you hear son of God, it is his title of messiahship. And when you hear that same title, son of David, it is the royal line, the lineage of David. They all understood that Jesus was going to come from the lineage of David. They all understood that. Jesus is imposing upon them an interesting, an interesting question. And not only is it has this kind of uh, logical, laced with a lot of theological uh, layers to it, revealing to us about the incarnation of God, that he is fully God, fully human. So we see that this mystery or this riddle is solved here. But what is Jesus doing? Why is he asking the question? That's, when I read this, I'm like, so what, what, why are you guys speaking riddles? Why are you always like questions? And I'm like, what, the, what, what did he just say? Because you got to know that these jokers are probably saying the same things. Like, what? Riddle me this, Batman. Like, why are you talking to me in riddles, Jesus? But they understood. Jesus is making it very clear. He's using the scripture. He's given them some rich theology. But not only that, he has given them something that is going to be so vital to their soul. It's a very vital question because the question has to do with the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And what the Bible affirms is that David's Lord was the eternal son of God. David's Lord was the eternal son of God, but he comes from the house and the lineage of David. Paul does this in many of his writings, and for example, 2 Timothy 2.8, he says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, offspring of David. You see, that's the same thing. Uh, I'll give you another one. Romans, Paul again writes to the, the church of Rome. In the exact same way, describing himself, Paul, as a, as a servant. And then he says of the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. And then verse 3 of Romans 1, concerning his son, title, the one of royalty, who was descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Why is this then question so vital? Because eternity is hanging on the question. And the question is about the identity of Jesus and the work of Jesus. 
The question that Jesus is posing upon the scribes and the question that he is posing upon some of you right here in this room is who is Jesus? And what is the work of Jesus? Well, I'll give you the answer because some of you are like, well, I don't know, tell me. Well, I'm going to tell you. Calm down. Because Psalm 110 tells you the answer to the question. Who is Jesus and what is the work of Jesus? So all of that by way of introduction is just to tell us, let's dive into Psalm 110. Just three verses, I promise I'm almost done because it won't take me long to get through this. Let me reread Psalm 110. You can read the whole thing later, but I'm just going to read the first three verses. So the Lord, and let me address this really quickly. It's hot. Okay? Don't pass out on me. That was free. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Let me just exegete this really quickly, and I think you'll be able to connect the dots. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, in our Bible, the clause, all right, I just went English on you, The clause, the Lord says to my Lord, contains two different Hebrew words for Lord. Okay? The first Lord would be better translated as the word Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, the Hebrew covenant name for God, Yahweh. The name that they didn't even spell out in its entirety. The name that they would not even want to whisper out. Yahweh. Father. Our Father. Yahweh. The second Lord, a better use for that word is Adonai. Who is Adonai? The Savior. The Messiah. Meaning Lord. Master. So Psalm 110 verse 1 David writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because that's what Jesus just said. Yahweh, the Father, says to the Son, Adonai. Now, the first Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, the eternal God, self-existent, the three in one, the triune God speaking to one another. Yahweh speaking to the master, the savior of the world. The Lord says to my Lord, what does he say? He says to him, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. So then there's a question of that. When does the Lord sit at the right hand? Well, scripture clearly tells us when the Lord sat at the right hand. After the ascension. In fact, Ephesians 1.20 says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand of the Father. Acts 7, as Stephen 
one of the very first uh, martyr, well, the first martyr is preaching a message and he's preaching a long message. And the message is so offensive. You know, we, got, we can't be so offensive in the church. It'll just run people off. Stephen's preaching a message that's so offensive that people are pelting him with rocks. As he is being pelted with rocks, he says in Acts chapter 7, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and I see the Son of Man standing by the right hand of the Father. Isn't that interesting? He wasn't sitting, but he was standing. Nonetheless, it doesn't matter the detail. He's right beside the Father. And he's right there because he was right there after the ascension. Now, then I've got more questions because, again, this is how my brain works. What is Jesus doing seated at the right hand of the Father? Well, Jesus told you what he was doing. In Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. All authority, therefore, therefore implying that what Christ is doing currently, right now, is he is ruling and reigning. Now, I know that don't excite you right now because you think, well, it certainly doesn't seem like he's ruling and reigning because you are limited in your scope. But if I were to peel us back 2,000 years, you would see that the reign and the rule of Christ has been clearly evident. And this doesn't, impl- and I think we've got to stop saying words like, well, he will rule one day. Well, he is going to be the king as if it is some futuristic tense that we expect him to do. The Bible is explicit on many things. Where it is clear, it is clear. Where it's a main thing, it's a plain thing. And it's a plain thing that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. He's ruling in America right now. Joe Biden is not the leader of this nation. Christ the King is ruler of this nation. He's ruling over Canada, over China, over Iran, over all realms of society. Jesus is King. He's not going to be King. You've got to stop saying that. Jesus is King, which means Every square inch of the cosmos right now is under his rule and reign. It is not under the rule of Satan. It is under the rule and reign of Christ. Now watch, watch what happens. You got to understand, so this is what Jesus is saying to these scribes. Not only is he, God is telling him, the father looks at Jesus. I'm going to have you sit at the right hand and you will triumph over every single enemy. Look what, look what the text says. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Until Yahweh puts his enemies under his feet. So Christ the king has been ruling for 2,000 years. How long will he remain seated? Hmm? Until every single enemy is put at his footstool. How long will Jesus be seating, sitting at the right hand of the Father? Until every single one of his enemies is submitted to his authority. Now, I got so many questions about that, but I'll get to it. 
Remember now, the authority is from heaven, but it's manifested on earth by the rule and reign of his power. So then here's the question we have to wrestle with. Then how is that power and authority manifested on earth? Well, he gives you the answer in verse three. Look what he says. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning. As this, the Holy Spirit is breathing and speaking to David and telling him the rule and the reign of Christ will be seated at the right hand of the Father until every one of his enemies is scattered and submitted to that rule. And here's how you're going to do it. You see what he's going to do? He's going to use some troops. Who are the troops? The church. How will we press out the kingdom rule of Christ into all nations? How will we do that? By the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we'll do it. Every enemy then will be defeated by how? The proclamation of the gospel. Who's going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus? And how are we going to see the enemy defeated then? Baby, you got to open up your dang mouth and proclaim the rule and reign of Christ the King now. Don't give me the garbage. Well, I'll just live it. Right? I'll just, I'll just be a little light of mine and just hide it under a little bushel and I'm just going to be a good person. That's not how you win people. That's how you look good. Okay? Okay? And ain't nobody got time for that. Because you're not winning people. You're not calling them to repentance by looking good. The enemy will be defeated... And here's how, by you opening up your mouth and telling the world around you, repent for the kingdom of God is here now. Submit to the rule of Jesus Christ as king. Now I can go through like a lot of laces. Uh, I can go through a lot of rabbit trails with this, but I'm going to have to chill out for just a second because if you can tell, this really excites me. It is what we call the sovereign sphere theology, that God has sovereign full reign over every sphere of our life, whether you like it or not. Over your family, over your community, over the realm of government, every single aspect of our world is submitted and is under the rule and reign of Christ the King. And he will be seated on his throne until every one of those enemies are under his submission. And that will take place by the troops, the church, proclaiming, repent, believe in Christ, and I, I, I wonder, because I told you at the beginning, this has a little bit of end time theology, does it not? When Christ steps off of that throne and he descends to gather a people, there's one enemy left. And that enemy is death. And when he gets up finally off his throne and he gathers his people into himself, that last enemy will be gone forever. Death will be no more. 
I'm quite sure when Jesus steps into the middle of these scribes and he tells them, the Lord says to my Lord that um, sit at my right hand until all of my enemies have been defeated. Wonder if he's thinking to these scribes, you're my enemy and you will be subdued to my power. Because you are two people in this room. You are either a child of God and don't give me the mess of everybody's a child of God. That's not true. You are a child of God if you have repented and believe in Christ. And the text would say, Jesus' own words would say in John chapter 7, that if you are not a child of God, Satan is your father. In other words, you are an enemy and you will be subdued to his power and authority one way or another. But the proper response would be for you today, say, Christ is king. I repent of my sins. And I fall under the authority and the rule and the reign of Christ, the king. Because one day he's going to get up off that throne and he's going to call the people into himself. And you better be a part of that people. Three quick, just quick things and I promise you I'll be done. I will shut your mouth. This is what I promise you. You ain't got nowhere else to go, Kim. Come on. Um, number, number three, because it was you that said it. Number one, Jesus knows the Bible and very quick application. Guess who ought to know the Bible? No, not your mama. You. Not the preacher. You. Study. Open the word. Let the word read you. Ask the question when you read the word, where's my sin and where's my savior? Because you can't really see your savior until you really see the depravity of yourself. Have the word of God read you also. In Jesus, and I love this, and I think I've made this point before, that if Jesus is saying that I'm sitting at the right hand of the father, Colossians 2 and chapter 3 also says that we are in Christ. Therefore, by implying, where are you at if you're in Christ? Huh? you too are also seated at the right hand of the Father. And that should give you so much encouragement, embolden you then to be the troops that Psalm 110 talks about. And lastly, there was a, I, I promise, I, I heard a pastor a couple weeks, maybe it was last week or a couple weeks ago, he was pretty predominant pastor, and I'm not going to call him out, but he, he told his congregation, thousands of people, he tells them, guess what? You lose. You lose. And it's a very, very uh, unrealistic view, not a very optimistic view of the scripture. You don't lose. You win. How do we know we win? Because Christ is seated on the throne and he will be seated there until every one of his enemies is subdued to his power and authority. That lets me know that we do win. Now, yes, we will be, and there will be some of us who are persecuted. Yes, we will go through trauma. Yes, we will go through an ordeal amount of stuff. But if I can just zoom us back just one more time, and if I can show you the history of the church, that through 2,000 years, it would appear that it looks like the church isn't losing, but that indeed we are winning. 
And let me tell you something. If you feel defeated, if you feel like life is just too much, hear the word of the Lord this morning. We win. We win. I mean, isn't that exciting? If I were in a charismatic church, people would be running around right now. We win. We don't lose. Why? Because Christ is king. And he is ruling and reigning. Because if we lose then guess what that implies? He lost. And y'all, I know my Bible back and forth. In fact, my preacher used to tell me when I was a little boy, I read the back of the book. And we win because Christ wins. And there will be a day when you stand before Jesus Christ and you will want to like go hug him and like just hold him and thank him because... We won. That's the victory we have.